0: You turn in your Bibles this evening to 1 Peter. We will be looking tonight, starting at verse twenty-two of chapter one, continuing on through verse three of chapter two. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired Word. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren. Love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open up our minds and hearts to receive it, that we would know the truth of your word, that we would know how we are to love you and to love one another according to your word. I pray most of all, you would write the hope of the gospel on our hearts, for it is the word by which we are saved. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you've heard this line before I love so and so in certain name of a person, but I don't like him or her. It's a pretty common saying, pretty common phrase, but what does it mean and why do we say it? Maybe we apply it to our difficult family members or difficult friends we know we're obligated to love. We are bound at all times by God's law of love to all people, and especially those with whom we have relations in the household of faith or our actual households. But some people make it difficult. They can annoy us. They get on our nerves. They treat us badly. Maybe they disagree with us on some things that we hold particularly dear and important For whatever reason, when we say that we love someone but don't like them, the implication is that there's some limitation or reservation to our love. We love begrudgingly. We keep these people at arm's length. We love them only because we have to, but we're not fully committed. We're not fully invested. We're not going to spend time or effort on this person unless it is necessary or somehow beneficial to us. Have you ever been there with someone in your life? The sad truth is we have probably all been there at some point. Well, tonight's text in First Peter deals with the subject of Christian love. We as Christians are to love one another. We know that. We look at that and talk about that from Scripture all the time. There's a decent chance if you've spent any time at all around Christianity or the church or Christians, you probably... Heard this command hundreds, thousands of times. What does it really mean? What does it really require? And how are we able to do it? Well, this text takes us deeper into Christ's second great commandment. It tells us as Christians, as Christ's church, that because we are in Christ, we are to love one another. And So we'll look at Peter's teaching tonight on Christian love in three points. First, the what of Christian love. We see that in verse 22 of chapter 1. And second, the why of Christian love in verses 23 and 24. What motivates our love? What is our purpose in love? And then third, the way of Christian love. So my care for alliteration, one out over my care for continuing to use interrogative particles, because I could have used how, but I went with way. (laughs) And you're like, why are you telling me this? (laughs) So third, the way of Christian love. How do we put this love into practice in our lives? We see this in verses one through three of chapter two. The what, the why, and the way. Those are our points for this evening. So first we look at the what of Christian love in verse 22 of chapter 1. So Peter begins with this since statement. So it assumes and it presumes everything he has talked about up to this point. I've only been looking at 1 Peter once a month, so I'm really testing yours and my memory. But what we have seen so far in 1 Peter is that we ought to have a hope firmly grounded in our salvation in Christ. And then because of that love, we are to live lives of holiness and readiness, not according to former passions and former ignorance. This purification of the Spirit is the work of the Spirit of faith that we saw all the way back in the beginning, and how we've been chosen by the Father, had the blood of the Son sprinkled on us by the Holy Spirit, and how we are being sanctified. So all of this presumes salvation. This is a teaching for Christians. And so what we see tonight, then, is a direct expansion of the previous teaching on holiness. How do we practice holiness as Christians? Well, Peter doesn't provide any particularly new or innovative formula for practicing holiness. In fact, he uses one of the most common and well-known commands of Scripture, love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Peter puts it this way, he says, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Again, nothing new. Even most non-Christians know that loving one another, that loving your neighbor, is a central tenet of Christianity. A problem, though, is the word love and the meaning that people assign to it. Love these days is often treated very subjectively. Love is what makes me happy. Love is what makes me feel good. Love is a feeling I get when I'm getting what I want and when all the right conditions are met. But that's not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about love. Love has particular and objective contents. Specifically, love in Scripture is grounded in God's moral law. Jesus made this clear in his teaching in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, when he said, On the two commands, to love God and love neighbor, hang the entire law and the prophets. We also see this in how the Ten Commandments are divided. The first four dealing with our duties to God, and then the last six dealing with duties to our neighbor. And this moral law is eternally binding on all people. And not only that, but it is written on the hearts of all people. You see that in passages like Romans 1 and 2. Of course, we also see that this law written on the heart is suppressed in unrighteousness. And that's why we need the law in Scripture to remind us and to illuminate this law to us. Now, Protestants have historically believed in three uses of the moral law. You might hear different orders, different arrangements, but in general, it's these three uses. The first is to drive us to Christ. We know from the law that we do not love God and love neighbor as we ought, and we recognize our need for redemption, for forgiveness, for salvation in Christ. Now, the second use of the law is for the general suppression of evil in the world. We see this in the law written on the heart. There are certain things that just everybody knows is wrong. Everyone knows it's wrong to murder. Everyone knows it's wrong to steal. Again, they may suppress that truth in unrighteousness, or they may just do it anyway. But we all have that innate knowledge we have the law of God written on our hearts as a part of being made in God's image. And then we even see this in how the laws of society are made. They all reflect these general moral principles. There aren't very many countries or very many places you can go where things like murder and theft are legal. They are almost universally outlawed. Again, this is the second use of the law. This is God's law having a restraining effect on all people. But then there is the third use of the law, which is the use of the law for instructing Christians in how they are to live. Peter in this text is looking particularly at that, this third use of the law. The law as it is a rule for life for Christ's redeemed people. But this love is not just bare and rigid observance of these commands. Peter concludes verse 22 with additional information. We are to love fervently and with a pure heart. It's not just keeping rules for their own sake. There are issues of intent and motivation. Fervently means to do something with a certain intensity and intentionality. It's not just obeying because we have to, but it's wanting to obey. It's striving to obey. It's caring about what we're doing as we obey. Though we do not arrive at perfect holiness in this life, to love fervently is to want holiness. We crave holiness and we pursue it. We pursue conformity to this law. And with a pure heart means that we are concerned with our motivations. We're not merely keeping commands for our good, for whatever we want to get out of it, or for our appearances, like we saw this morning with Ananias and Sapphira. No, love with a pure heart is doing the right things, but also doing them for the right reasons. But why should we be so motivated to love in this way? Well, this brings us to our second point. After the what of Christian love and how it is grounded in the law, we come to the why of Christian love in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 1. I already mentioned that Peter's command to love here comes in light of everything that we've seen so far in 1 Peter. But he tells us again, starting in verse 23. He says that our new love comes from our new life, our new birth. Let's talk about Peter's born-again language at the beginning of verse 23. Most of American Christianity associates being born-again with some kind of crisis conversion experience. Perhaps you hear about this phrase and you think about Some Billy Graham type preacher pleading, appealing to a crowd to come down to the front and give your life to Christ on the 24th or 25th verse of just as I am. You've probably seen it at conferences or camps or rallies or on TV, the altar call where people need to come down and pray that prayer and be born again. Is that what being born again is about? Where does our new life and new birth really come from? Is it from us being properly persuaded by the right set of emotional factors to give our lives to Christ? I mean, by all means, public profession of faith is important. But we need to recognize what faith is and where faith comes from. You can think back to the opening verses of 1 Peter 1. It talked about how we were elected, foreknown, predestined, chosen by the Father in eternity past. Well, before we could decide anything, he decided for us. So our being born again is not some decision that we make. Being born is a passive action. We don't decide to be born. We weren't in our mother's womb for nine months, and then we're like, yeah, I'm all set, I'll come out now. No, our new birth is the work of God in us, regenerating us, effectually calling us, and converting us to faith in him. Our profession of faith, then, is just the evidence of the work that God has already done in us, that he has given us this new life and this new birth. And this is not birth like natural birth. This is not life like natural life. Peter continues to describe how we were born again, not of a corruptible seed, so the fallen and sinful seed of Adam. All who are born of Adam by ordinary generation, to use the language of our Westminster standards, are born into sin and death. But new life new birth, comes from incorruptible seed. The seed of the woman promised at the fall. The sinless seed, the seed that comes from this new birth in Jesus Christ. And this new new birth is effectually applied by the Holy Spirit. He applies the word of God to our hearts. He removes our hearts of stone And gives us hearts of flesh so that we might receive it. We might receive the word, not of ourselves, not by our own feelings or emotions or decisions, but by the supernatural and regenerating power of God. And Peter then proceeds to quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 7 and 8. This passage expands on the seed illustration and uses the imagery of plants. We've all seen in the springtime when rains come down and the grass springs up, the flowers bloom, allergies get bad, but everything starts to look green and alive. And in the summer, it gets hot, the, it might get dry, and then all the flowers wilt, the petals fall off, the grass turns brown and dies. Apart from the life that we are given in Christ through his word, that's what happens to us. In Adam's seed, we are temporary, we are fleeting, we are destined for death. But the Word comes to us, and through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, it changes our life, and it changes our destiny. We have a new, imperishable life in Jesus Christ through His Word. And Peter gets more specific on the Word in verse 25. This is about the saving word, the word by which the gospel was preached, the word of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the word about the perfect life and atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. It is his righteousness imputed to us. To be born again is to receive this gospel by faith, which itself is a work of God in us, our faith is. But our new birth and our new life is not just for salvation. It changes us. It transforms us from those who are characterized by and live according to the former passions that we talked about before to those kind of people who love sincerely and truly according to God's law. And so that is the why. That is the reason for this Christian love in us. Well, let's move this discussion from the big picture to the specifics. We'll turn now to our final point. After the what and the why of Christian love, we come to the way of Christian love in these first three verses of chapter two. So the way of love requires two things, two sets of things. It requires negatives, the putting away of things, but then it requires positives, doing other things instead. So first we get the negatives. Peter writes that we are to put aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. That's quite a list. When we think about these things, not only do we realize that we used to do them, but we still do them even as Christians. And we can go through them and we can start to see how far these commands reached. We see that we're warned against malice. We're not to hate others. We're not to think ill and want ill for others. Hate is the opposite of love. Love leaves no place for malice. We're told to put aside deceit. We're to be truthful. We're not to lie. We're not to slander, gossip, bear false witness. We're to look out for our own good name and the good name of our neighbor we warned against hypocrisy. You've probably heard people say before something like, I don't want to go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. And often this accusation is unfair and unfounded, and the one making it really isn't interested in Christ or Christianity. But that doesn't mean that we're not sometimes hypocritical. And there is no excuse for our actual hypocrisy. The truth is we like to accuse others of things while justifying ourselves for doing the same things. We criticize the world for its sins, but while letting our own sins go unchecked. And the world knows this and sees it. How often does the media pick up and run with a scandal when it specifically involves a church or a church leader? It's often not fair, but often we don't help. We have to watch how we live before one another and before the world. They already hate us, but let's not give them more fuel for the fire. We've been going through the book of Acts, and we've seen in there how the church was growing, with, growing in favor with men as they were living together and loving and serving God and one another as they were called to do. It was impossible for people to deny the positive impact that the church was having around them. Yes, the world hates us and opposes us, but let's make them work for it. Let's not be hypocritical and dishonoring to God and to the church by our conduct. Now, we're also warned here against envy. We're not to be jealous. We're not to be covetousness, wanting those things that are not ours to have. Covetousness is the root of all sin. You see what's not yours. You don't have it. You can't have it. And suddenly all kinds of evil springs up in the desire to have it. And then finally, we're not to speak evil. Again, the gossip, the slander, but also the speaking of evil and profane and unclean things. We are to guard not only our actions, but our speech. For it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. And you don't say things without them coming from somewhere. In order for things to become our words, they have to live and dwell in our hearts and in our minds. Speech is just an external reflection of the internal. And so we must guard our hearts and so guard our words. Those are the negatives that Peter gives us. Those are the things that we are to put away and put aside. But then next in verse 2 of chapter 2, we're told what we should do. We are to long as infants for pure spiritual milk of the word. Now what does that mean? Many take this to mean that Peter is addressing new believers who need the milk so that they can grow up and mature and move on to something else. But Peter doesn't qualify the text this way. All believers are here exhorted to crave spiritual milk as though they were infants. And spiritual milk here that causes growth and salvation is the word of God. Now, if you've ever had or spent time around a baby, you know what it's like when baby is hungry. There's an urgency, there's a demand There's a recognition of necessity. It doesn't matter what time, day or night, if baby is hungry, baby's going to eat, and that's just how it's going to be. Do we have that kind of insatiable desire for God's word? The kind that demands that all other longings be set aside until this one thing can be found? Because that's the picture that Peter is painting for us. Just like the baby wants to be fed and will disrupt all other things to be fed, we are to strive to hear the word. And we recognize our frailty and need without it. And we order and organize the rest of life around the word. It becomes a central and vital and important part of our lives. Think about it this way. If a baby only got fed during one hour, one day a week, that baby's not going to do well. That baby's probably not even going to survive. Babies are growing and developing. They have to eat all the time. And that's the kind of appetite we need to have for the word. If we only get it one hour, one day a week, then that's not going to be enough. We need to be in it all the time, every day, at home, ourselves with our families. We should practice family worship and personal devotions. We should read and learn and pray according to God's word. We should love the word, strive for the word, crave the word, and saturate our lives in the word. It is our milk. It is our food. It is our life. An hour of that on Sunday is not going to be enough. And then in verse 3, Peter attaches a qualifier. He says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So this passage is an instruction for Christians. All of this putting aside of evil and feeding on the milk of the word does not matter to the unconverted or to the unrepentant. If you're being a nice person for your own glory or reading the Bible merely as an obligation, and yet you do not do these things in faith, receiving and resting upon the grace of Christ as he has offered in the gospel. It's empty. It's pointless. It's all in vain. Do not merely presume that because you do these things, you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, you certainly ought to be doing these things But these things do not make you a Christian. They are the fruits of our salvation. They are not the means that create our salvation. So in this text, we see both a warning against presuming to belong to Christ because we do these things, but also against belonging to Christ and yet neglecting these things. It's a double-edged sword. See, the former will send you to hell if you practice empty works apart from faith in Christ. And if that describes you, the call for you tonight is to repent of your sins and believe in Christ, to receive and rest on him as he's offered in the gospel. But the latter, this having faith but not putting these things into practice, will leave you as a stunted, hypocritical, carnal Christian who is unable and unready to face the difficulties and trials of this life. You're not properly equipped for Christian warfare, the sort of Christian trials that Peter knows the church is going through, that we as a church face more and more all the time. So the warning swings both ways. To the non-Christians, you need to be Christians. To the Christians. You need to put these things into practice in your life. We can never outgrow the Word. We can never outpace the law or the gospel. The reason we look at both of them every Sunday is because they are central to us. They are vital to us. The law that points us to our sins It points us to our need for Christ, but also shows us how to live, and then the gospel by which we have been saved. Without these, our love is empty. Our love is meaningless. Our love is hopeless. And yet with these, and because of these things, our love is real. Our love is alive. Our love glorifies God and helps others to the glory of God. And so tonight, may we all know Christ, love Christ, and then in light of that knowledge and love for Christ, love others according to this word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this instruction that Peter gave us, that he wrote all these many years ago to a church that was facing trials and was facing difficulties, and yet it remains living and active for us. I pray that we would be diligent to love the Word, to seek the Word, to love according to the law of love that you have set forth before us. Most of all, I pray that if there are any here tonight who do not know Christ, I pray that by your Spirit you would work faith in them. And because of our love for Christ, we would be faithful to speak of him, to tell others of him that do not know, and that also that we would love others as you have called us to do, putting aside all of these evil things and longing for your word and longing to love and serve others as you have called us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamelopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.